Mrs. Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 14 Leszczycki liked to stroll alone at night. He loved the poetry and mystery of night and rarely went to bed before morning. When signs of the practical and sordid began to appear, such as street sweepers and shopkeepers dusting off their wares and taking to their brooms, he was ready to go home. He never kept regular hours, and used to exclaim, "'Oh, what misery it must be to be obliged to lead a regular life!' If he felt like staying up all night, he would do so. Someone asked him once if he ever saw the sunrise. "'Probably just as often as you do,' he answered. "'But if I really want to see the sunrise, I shall get up one morning for this purpose. I shall appreciate it the more, not being obliged to look at it often.' "'You cannot have everything all the time,' he went on. "'Regularity is one of the worst of habits if you want your days to be interesting.' He had amazing physical strength and endurance, which he attributed for the most part to common sense and willpower. When he was tired, he rested, no matter what the hour. He used to laugh at the expenditure of energy it required to take physical exercise by flinging one's arms and legs about. He thought that no intelligent person would do this, and that one should conserve one's energy for something worthwhile, like riding, for instance or dancing, or for study. Study should not be timed and regulated by the clock. You are always at it, more or less, he said, if you take pleasure in your profession. And he had no patience with those who were so carried away with Viennese life that they could find no time or energy for a few hours' study out of every twenty-four. He went to the limit of his strength in five or six hours of teaching and fairly staggered to the dining-room, incapable of speech, until he had dined. His dinner usually began with a special kind of caviar which was hardly ever missing from the table. It pleased him when he sometimes had a present of a small box of caviar, but he preferred his own brand, which he had specially sent from Russia. A certain kind of sweet champagne was another important part of his meal. He loved champagne, but not especially the dry quality. After a long, well-served dinner, he was himself again, and it seemed as if his physical resources were unlimited. He was ready then to play again, if necessary, or even to play the whole night long with some pupil preparing for a concert, if he wanted to do so, or thought it essential to that pupil's success, or he was ready for the opera or the theatre, which always put new life into him. After the theatre, he was usually in very high spirits, and wanted to go and sit in some café to talk and to watch people, 
or for dinner he would like to go to Venice in Vienna in the Prater, where one could order the best dinner that a Viennese or Parisian chef could prepare. After that he liked the gondolas or the allée where they threw confetti. It was in this park that the famous flower fete of Vienna were annually held, and Leschetitsky liked very much to take part in these exciting and interesting spectacles. Late at night again he drank liqueurs, or the good Hungarian toke. A famous wine in Austria was that made at Klosterneuburg near Vienna. Leschetitsky tasted his wines with the critical interest of a connoisseur, smiling and rolling his eyes about, and seemed to enjoy a process of slow sipping rather than actual drinking. He thought that no real artist could be oblivious to the pleasures of wine. He thought that, besides being judges of wine, artists should know how to cook, and if they were women, should know how to make a dress. Seasoning of food was an art, and in making a dress there were form, composition, embellishment, and color to be studied. Leschetitsky practiced economy and did not spend his money foolishly. He carefully studied the quality of everything he intended to buy and use, and knew usually where materials and objects of art were manufactured. If he had had time and money for it, he would have made an intelligent and shrewd collector, for he had the keenest sense of intrinsic values, and was willing to take great pains in studying these values. But there are times, he said, when one spends money not wisely, but well. I used to be more foolish about that when I was younger, and spent money sometimes when it was to be my last penny. Now I haven't the pleasure any longer of being so stupid, for I have more money. He well remembered a youthful time when he was one of a convivial company of young men who were spending a great deal of money. He felt a strong desire to contribute his share, but the money in his pocket was all he would have for several days. If it was spent, he would not only have to walk home, go dinnerless for a day or two, but probably would have to pawn some of his clothes. But it was impossible to sit there without paying for something. Without perfect zangfroid, he ordered several bottles of the best champagne and took the consequences. He liked to make the most of every situation and enjoyed himself. Consequently, he made no rules of conduct for himself, trusting to intuition and good taste to bring romance and poetry into daily living. He was entirely without creeds and doctrines of any sort, and relied upon his own willpower and common sense to keep him fit and in good health. He smoked a great deal, but evidently with certain restrictions, for sometimes he would take a cigar and after a moment's hesitation put it aside for another occasion. He had a few small prejudices and aversions. Cut flowers were distasteful to him. When he took a walk in the country, he had a positive dislike of returning by the same road. His walk was an event to him, and he delighted in making it as circuitous as possible. A straight approach to a point and a direct return gave him no pleasure. 
rather than be bored by retracing his steps, he would order a carriage to take him home. Cards were a favorite form of diversion with him, but he was not an agreeable person at the card table. He played with an intense absorption in the game, and gave way to extravagant expressions of disgust if the others did not show the same interest and skill. Those who submitted to the agonies of playing with him were frequently humiliated by his amazement and scorn at any misplay which he always attributed to stupidity. He would shout at the player and call him a stupid fool, and sometimes became so angry that he would not speak to the unfortunate person for days afterward. At the billiard table, however, he was cool and self-possessed and a most excellent player. He rode very well, too, and maintained that one should sit at the piano as one sat in the saddle. He had an aversion to clubs and societies, and, as for becoming a member of a church, this was something which he could not take seriously. For pagan philosophy he had great respect, but he had a theory that the Christian religion had done more harm than good in this world, and that theology was a futile subject which might best be left alone altogether. Religion was for the few, he thought, not for the many. The idea of a missionary's imparting spiritual ideas and emotions to a savage always roused his wrath to the highest pitch of protest and ridicule. How much better it would be, he said, for them to have soothing and happy music played to them, music with no words. Left to themselves, the savages of Borneo exhibit a high sense of honor, he went on. I was told this by an explorer whom I met. After all, the explorer is the true missionary. He learns from the savage. But we must not be hottentots and be without ideals. To go on one's knees and look up, not down, is a helpful act. It distracts us from the miseries of this world, as music does. And the more you can appreciate this benefit, the more you will gain by it. That earth-bound, ignorant man who goes into a church and makes the sign of the cross comes out with a poor spiritual equipment. The things of the spirit are beyond his grasp, and his interpretation of the spiritual is on a level with his intelligence. Better far to make him superstitious and turn the evil eye upon him, or to appeal to his pride. This will content him, and often save him from disgrace." You try to make him feel humble, and he will show you that he is not. Then you have but one recourse, to make him a slave. Leshetitsky could not find sufficient idealism in Christian doctrines. How often I heard him say, Be ideal. Think ideally. We can all afford to cultivate that quality. We can learn from the pagans, read the works of the great French critics, and see with how much of the old Greek philosophy they are imbued. Whether it makes you happier or not, it is worth the trouble to try to live ideally. If you think yourself a poor specimen, you will probably always remain one, or most likely become one. But if you think of yourself as having possibilities of greatness in you, there is a chance for you. I learn useful things at night, he once said. 
I learn how mistaken we are in thinking we know so much. You can learn much from peace and quiet, and from music, and music begins where thought leaves off. I study for hours, he went on, when I am walking alone in the night. I look far down the street and imagine a beautiful voice, and I learn that faraway pianissimo quality. That means attention. I look up to the sky, and it teaches me pride and grandeur. When I see that poor man lying on the ground, I know how to play a loving phrase. But the next moment there comes a theorist or a moralist and spoils it all. He tells you what should be, not what is, and then I ask, where is the music? Many pupils remember those mornings when Leschetitsky walked with us into Vienna from the Vering cottage after the classes. If it was toward six o'clock, we would sometimes wait until the doors of a coffee house were opened and could have coffee. More often we stopped to talk with sleepy peasant women who had just driven in and were spreading their wares at the corner markets. Their wagons formed a long procession. The men drove with their heads nodding, the women asleep on straw or blankets spread on top of their boxes or on heaps of vegetables or fruit. On reaching the places where they would improvise their counters for the day, they would crawl lazily to their allotted places amid a concert of sighs and groans. In a few minutes, however, they were chattering like magpies or busy quarreling. It was a joy to see how Leschetitsky could bring out their good nature. "'The devil take you!' called one. "'There he comes!' shouted another as we approached. "'Good morning,' said Leschetitsky. "'How is your business?' "'Good,' she said, "'and we earn a little.' "'Then have a good time,' he replied. "'When you get older, you might forget how to enjoy yourself.' "'Have an apple,' said she, handing him one of the handsomest. "'Thank you,' said Leschetitsky. "'These are worth looking at, and eating, too.' "'Good appetite to you,' called out another. "'He answered many of them in their own dialect. "'Aren't you going to buy?' asked another. "'General laughter.' "'Yes, indeed,' said Leschetitsky, "'but not from you. "'There are better-looking fruits elsewhere. "'I try never to waste my money.' "'They told her that her fruits were poor,' said her neighbour, "'but she would not believe them. "'You seem to have fairly good eyes,' said Leschetitsky. "'Perhaps they are looking too far away.' "'Great laughter this time. "'Now he will like you all the better,' said Leschetitsky, "'if you attend properly to your business.' Why don't you try to outdo the others and have the best-looking counter here? My advice isn't bad, I am sure. Why are you here at this time? asked another. Are you dancers? Much sudden curiosity among them. No, said Leschetitsky, but we can dance. We are a band of poets and are up to see the sunrise. You are not so tired as we are, spoke up one of the market women. We danced all night. Can you dance well? asked Leschetitsky. That is the question. That takes practice. It is your duty to dance. Dance a little the first thing in the morning when you have slept all night and your faces won't grow any longer. Buy of me, whispered another. Buy here, beautiful gentleman, called another. 
They were all ready now for the market, and looked strong and healthy and happy. "'This is scandalous for us,' said Leshetitsky, addressing our little party. "'It is well enough for me who can stay in bed until one o'clock. But what have you to do this morning? It is dreadful of me to keep you up so late. But still it is better than staying up all night for a ball. Think of the playing we have heard tonight, such as Friedman's, for instance.' Then Leshetitsky would hail a rumbling one-horse conveyance and be driven home for a few hours of sleep before the lessons of the day. There were, of course, no morning appointments with him. The first lesson was fixed for twelve or one o'clock, and it was always somewhat difficult for him to get started. His mood, when he appeared, was determined by the list of pupils waiting for him. His expression was peaceful if good names were on the list, and business-like if they were new to him. If there was one among them who had become an artist, his attitude was one of delight and expectancy, even of deference. He was the keenest of observers, and had an aesthetic sense that made him notice every detail of one's dress and appearance and conduct. If one dressed elaborately, he expected the playing to have some resemblance to the dress. If one was shabby in appearance, he generally found some shabbiness in the playing, and of such appearance he was particularly critical. "'I am sometimes ashamed of myself,' he once said. "'I am afraid I judge too much like the French and Italians. They want good looks on the stage. They cannot help it, and they treat bad looks with no consideration at all.' A public performer need not be a man of the world, but he or she ought to look distinguished in some way, or else stay away from the stage. He told a story of one of Madame Marchese's pupils, a beautiful singer and a great artist, but very ungraceful and disappointing in looks, who was discourteously hissed as she stood before an audience at her first concert. The kind Madame Marchese had evidently prepared her for what might happen, for she had advised her not to make her first public appearance in Paris. When the singer saw the mood of her audience, she stepped forward courageously and said, "'Ladies and gentlemen, I have come here to sing, not to be looked at.' This speech at once turned the tide in her favour, and she proceeded to sing, arousing the greatest enthusiasm." It was not safe to go to Leshetitsky with a button off one's glove, or embroidery even slightly frayed. These things he observed at once. He remarked to one girl, "'You have the same fault in your person that is in your playing. You have a button off your shoe every time I have seen you.' "'You have improved in your dress as well as in your playing,' he said to another. "'Your clothes used to look fussy.' The first time I saw you, you had your dress covered with bows. Once he was indignant when two or three American girls appeared in midi blouses at their lessons, and thereafter made a point of asking any girl who came to a lesson so attired if her father were a sailor. A really serious incident occurred when a young Viennese friend of his began suddenly to affect an English sportsman's style of clothes, which was conspicuous in Vienna. Leschetitsky took every occasion to make fun of his thin legs. 
it is probable that other and more serious affectations were developing in the character of his youth, else Leschetizky would never have resented so bitterly the knee-breeches and the checkered waistcoat, nor have mortified this good friend by drawing attention to his clothes before a crowd of English friends. Colors which did not harmonize were an annoyance to him, but more annoying still was an ungraceful and awkward bearing. This he noticed instantly, and put down to lack of rhythm. Rhythm was of the greatest importance to Leschetizky. He defined it as balance, and had a keener sense of it than most people. He used frequently to say that if there were any rhythm in the waves of the ocean, one could walk so as never to be seasick. Faulty rhythm in playing literally made him sick, and I remember seeing him hurriedly leave the room on more than one occasion, when there was real unbalance and lack of rhythm in a performance. He was critical, naturally, of quality in a voice and of enunciation. The pole speaks with a great rise and fall of voice, a characteristic almost oriental, whence comes, he said, the great variety and inflection that is natural to them in playing. He criticized the rough tones of the Germans, while admitting that their language had force and accent. From the French, on the other hand, he expected great clearness in playing, but some monotony of expression. Of the English and American manner of speaking, he had really nothing good to say. The English had soft voices, but mouthed their words, and he thought we English-speaking people ought all to study Italian, to learn to move our lips, and he always wondered why we did not smile when we spoke. "'Here comes the rule Britannia!' he once exclaimed. "'The best person in the world, but you would never think it from the way he speaks.' And in speaking German, we English and Americans were the same. We didn't open our mouths, and therefore spoke indistinctly. One girl was greatly mystified as to why Leschetizky always tiptoed around the room during her lessons, at the same time speaking to her so indistinctly that she always had to ask him to repeat his words. At last she realized that this was to be an object lesson for her, and she finally cured herself of her almost inaudible speech. Every little detail of personality interested him. Sometimes a pupil's whole career was changed when the master became aware of some particular charm or grace he had at first overlooked. Arthur Shaddock was one who did not interest Leschetizky instantly. One evening he saw the young man dancing. He watched him intently and seemed utterly bewildered on discovering his rhythm and grace. "'Tell him to come out tomorrow for a lesson,' he said. "'If he can dance as well as that, he is not so stiff and cold as I thought.' Clarence Bird was another to whom Leschetizky made amends for a hasty judgment. To quote Mr. Bird's own words, it was difficult for one acquainted with Leschetizky's mode of teaching to fall into it easily, for his energetic, often passionate manner and highly concentrated intensity were likely to intimidate a new arrival. Thus it was that I, at first, failed sadly to follow his biddings. He attributed this to the shape of my head. 
It showed obstinacy, stubbornness, he said. Heaven knows that my gifts are few, but a desire to learn is and was one of them. Of this Leshetitsky later convinced himself, and though my unhappy head was before him all the while to remind him of his mistaken judgment, he nevertheless took great pains to show his change of opinion of me, until finally nothing could exceed the kind and fatherly intimacy of the lessons. I think he appreciated willingness and good intentions for all they were worth, and his sense of justice, as illustrated in my case, was very acute. There was a certain aesthetic sensitiveness in Leshetitsky, which made any physical deformity or peculiarity, however slight, repugnant to him. There was a very well-known blind musician who wished to visit one of the classes. I have often tried to think I could have him here, Leshetitsky said, but it is not possible. I could not bear to see those eyes. If he lost his temper sometimes, and there was an avalanche of wrath, the result was the entire smoothing out of all his troubles, and he was ready to give his whole attention to improvement. He could not rest during the few hours he took for deep sleep if he thought he had really injured anyone. A pitiful expression on the face was a torment to him, as was also a disappointed tone of voice. This might easily spoil his day, and he could never rest until he had made more than the fullest amends. He had one thoroughly talented and interesting pupil, who had disturbed him for several months by various little negligences. Leszczytycki seemed, indeed, to be very critical of him. He was first dissatisfied with his clothes. His collars were either too low or too high. Then, with his manner at lessons, sometimes, and, it was reported, with the length of his hair. There are plenty of others who affect long hair, Leszczytycki told him. Yours is too short. Long hair would be becoming to you. The master had a reputation, among some pupils, of being very pointed in his remarks, and of being witty at the expense of the exact truth. But one did, nevertheless, do well to take more or less seriously every word that he spoke in lessons, whether emphatic or casual. Some students made the mistake of not doing so, to their ultimate sorrow and regret. Many will remember that painful scene in the class when the situation came to a climax. There was a particularly festive atmosphere that evening. Several distinguished American guests were present, among them Miss Ines, the daughter of George Ines, the famous painter. This evening Leszczytski seemed more than usually critical of everything. He sent me to ask the guests to remove their hats. Someone had appeared in real evening dress and had brought several uninvited people with her, which greatly disturbed him. The atmosphere was not serious or definite enough for him. He went to the piano and struck a few chords impatiently, and it was very obvious that something was wrong. When it came to this pupil's turn to play, either his low collar or his short hair or his manner affected Leszczytski too disagreeably and his repressed wrath burst forth. "'Before you play,' he said, "'you should turn and apologize to this assembly. "'We do not like your looks. 
We do not like the looks of others here either. We come here for one purpose, and we should come thoughtfully and considerately. This is not a social function. Neither is it a peasant's brawl. Until you have learned to be more correct and proper in your manner and in your dress, you need not come here. There was an awful moment when several of the class rose. Miss Siness and her friends silently left the room. Other strangers followed, remarking that they would not care to study in a house where such a thing could occur. The pupil left the room humiliated, but with an expression on his face of patience and forbearance that irritated Leshetitsky the more. His wife, Madame Eugenie, came into the room earnestly protesting that it was really too much. Leshetitsky answered wrathfully, No, it was not. Anyone may leave who pleases. Martinus Sivking, with great kindness of heart, went out into the hall where the poor boy was standing, thoroughly crushed and miserable, not knowing which way to turn. Sivking advised him to do nothing at the moment, but for the sake of his music, to forgive Leshetitsky. Yes, he answered Sivking and the other sympathetic pupils who had gathered round him. Leshetitsky told me never to come to his house again, but he is right. He has criticized me for nearly a year, and I have never listened to him seriously. I shall stay here, and try to change and come back to him again. My lesson happened to fall on the day after this trying scene in the class. I found Leshetitsky greatly agitated. He put off my lesson, and gave the time to pacing up and down the room and talking. I have tried to be kind for months, he said, because he is talented and a dear boy. How could one speak plainer than I have spoken all this time? And still there is no sign of a change in him. He is not dull, and so I have hoped that he would not need a shock to wake him up. It would not have been so bad last night, but for that haunting, injured look on his face. Now I have heard that he is trying to save his money, and does not care about clothes, and so if money will help, he has some that I have sent him anonymously. Perhaps it does require money to be always presentable, but I did not realize that before. Why didn't some of you relieve me of this duty? People think I am harsh. That beautiful Miss Ines does evidently and two or three others, Madame Eugenie also. Well, let us be more cheerful, he concluded. There are things we can do. I shall send for him first and apologize. I can at least make amends and give him all the lessons he wants. Why, even the newspapers might write about this, and I should appear as a monster. Leshetitsky was miserable and uneasy until an hour or two later when he found an opportunity to apologize to his pupil. It was a matter of rather secret delight to the rest of us to watch the improvement and success of this pupil in Vienna. He told us afterward that Leshetitsky's kindness at the lessons, in an attempt to make up for what had happened, was really pitiful and always made him weep. Those pupils of Leshetitsky who have heard with shame of a girl who struck Leshetitsky in the face because of some reprimand will always regard this other pupil with affectionate appreciation for his resignation and fortitude. One evening about midnight my bell rang. 
and the housefrau came in with a horrified expression, saying that I must come to the door at once. Leshetitsky had been brought to my house by a fiacre driver, who explained to us that he had found him in a half-conscious state by the roadside in one of the suburbs of Vienna. He happened to be one who had often driven Leshetitsky, and had recognized him at once. Leshetitsky, it appeared, had just strength enough to give him the address of my house, which he knew they must pass on the way home, and then collapsed. We at once gave him stimulants and sent for the doctor. After he revived, Leshetitsky related to me how since four o'clock that afternoon he had been searching the suburbs for one of his pupils, about whom we had been worried. The day before, the pupil had taken his lesson. He had asked Leshetitsky if he thought he could become a great artist. Leshetitsky had replied very emphatically that it was impossible. He was a temperamental and visionary young Slav, and his pitiful expression when he left the house had haunted Leshetitsky all that night. His anxiety increased the next day, and at four o'clock he found himself unable to go on with the lesson in hand, excused himself abruptly, and started out in quest of the boy's lodgings in one of the suburbs. The housekeeper told him that after hours of wretchedness her lodger had left the house about half an hour before. She said that all the night before he had raved. She thought the professor must be a terrible man if he could do such things to anyone. Of course, he had a dreadful reputation anyway. She shook her fist in his face. She called him a bear and a devil and all sorts of horrible names. She wanted to shut the door in his face and said it would be a great deal better if no one ever came to Vienna to study with him. Leshetitsky asked if the boy needed money, and she told him that he had not been able to pay his last board bill. After giving her the proper amount and a few more golden to buy something comfortable for his room, he hurried off in the direction the young man was supposed to have taken. He walked far into the country, and about ten o'clock he found the boy sitting in a swamp, a revolver in his hand, apparently about to end his life. Leshetitsky got him home, but for once his strength failed him, and he sank down exhausted in the road where he was fortunately seen and recognized by the coachman. There were many instances where he tried to avert scandal and tragedy in his class, but did not always succeed. To many who came to Vienna to study, success was a matter of life and death. He knew this, and the responsibility bore heavily upon him. His face often wore a troubled look for the things he felt himself obliged to say. I once heard him remark with an expression almost of anguish, "'What I want to be in this world is an honest man.' He looked after the desperate pupil who had attempted suicide with great tenderness, during the next year the young man appeared at the class with a conspicuously pale and tragic face, and I am sure Leshetitsky gave him every chance to develop what talent he had. It may be truthfully said that the moral tone of Leshetitsky's class in Vienna was far higher than that in most musical centers, and Leshetitsky himself was the reason for this. He was poetic and romantic, but hated sordid scandals. Serious experience of any description he considered not only valuable, 
but necessary to the life of an artist. But if these experiences were not tinged with romance and poetry, he would not hear of them. He loved freedom in words, in actions, but it must always be artistic freedom. Leschetizky was perhaps too much an idealist, and in consequence he suffered many disappointments. Practical as he was in his teaching, he said nothing so often as he said, play ideally, and in every relationship he hoped for perfection. One evening he took Jane Olmsted, my sister and me, to see the first production of Old Heidelberg. As the curtain rose on the first act, one heard a gasp from him, and in a minute or two he turned to us and said, You will have to excuse me. I cannot see this play. We were amazed at his sudden departure. Later on he came back with very red eyes, much agitated, and just managed to control himself throughout the rest of the performance. After that, instead of going somewhere to have coffee, as we generally did, he excused himself again and went home. He explained to us the reason for his trouble. As the curtain rose on the opening scene, he saw the picture of the sunny hillsides and peaceful valleys where he and Esipov had walked and the same shady trees under which they had been accustomed to sit when they spent their honeymoon in Heidelberg. It was there, he said, he had dreamed of being a happy man.'